It is a great joy for me to be back here at St. George's. I've long treasured this church and the relationship that existed when I was at Duke Divinity School. Susan, my wife, and I are now thrilled to be residents of Nashville and honored to be at Belmont University and grateful for the ties that connect us uh, between Belmont and this congregation. It is a great joy to be with you. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, descend your Holy Spirit upon us gathered here. Speak through me, if necessary, in spite of me and always beyond me, that your word might be heard by your people this day. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, we're living in difficult times for a whole variety of reasons, the most obvious of which is COVID, but I've been describing us as living in a time of multiple pandemics. The challenges are real, whether it's the heightened attention to racial injustice in our country and in our world, whether it's the economic disruptions and the anxieties about the future of work, whether it's mental health challenges that are afflicting young people as well as older people and all of us in different ways as we navigate what I've increasingly come to call Blur's Day, the ways in which everything just seems to blur together as we navigate all of the difficulties we face. And yet there's another pandemic that didn't start with COVID, and yet it has been intensifying, and that's the divisiveness of our political culture, our communities, our families, our broader world. It didn't start with the last 18 months, but it has intensified to a point where our civic life seems more and more fragile. Families feel more and more fragile. Michael Ignatieff, the political philosopher, went around the world to assess what was the state of civic life. He visited two cities in the United States, New York and Los Angeles. This was back in 2014, suggesting that it goes way back. And what he found was that people were okay getting along, but they'd given up on really being committed to one another to practicing civic friendship, to believing that there are ties that bind us together. What was particularly striking in his 2017 book, The Ordinary Virtues, was a phrase that he heard from someone in Queens, New York. He said, the person said, we've learned how to live side by side, but we'll never live together. We've learned how to live side by side, but we'll never live together. Well, we can be grateful if there's a contentment with living side by side, but what Ignatieff points out is that while that may carry you through ordinary times, it's insufficient when stresses begin to develop. That then you have to have the practices and the commitments that enable us to live together in a much stronger way than simply side by side. You see, when stresses come, when challenges surface, whether it's in our own lives and in our families or whether it's in the broader community or whether it's a global pandemic in the world, we find ourselves caught up in the moment. The intensification and stress often leads to a breakdown. In Wendell Berry's wonderful novel, Jaber Crow, there's a story about the community that he lived in and how everybody lived side by side pretty contentedly until Saturday night when a group of them went out to the country to drink some moonshine together. 
When Jaber was there for the first time, he noticed that uh, as the moonshine was passed around the circle, that as each person drank out of the jug, that there was a sound that would come out of the jug. Good, 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 as they were drinking it. But then Jaber realized that pretty soon, long-standing bitterness, festering wounds in relationships started to surface and things would fall apart, and pretty soon the brokenness intensified and there was nothing good about the evening. That's the kind of world we live in, it seems, these days. Whether moonshine is present or not, the fragility of our relationships, the tribalism, the sense of hunkering down with me and mine and just throwing verbal grenades at each other, it's being intensified by social media, but it's not caused by that. It's caused by the brokenness of our relationships. When I was doing leadership development a few years ago for senior bishops in the Church of England, we were there for two days, and Brendan Cox came, who's developing a project called More in Common, after his wife, Joe Cox, a rising star in Parliament, was murdered. Turns out by a Muslim man, but not a terrorist. It was somebody with mental health challenges. And what he said was, we have more in common. And they started more in common in England, in the U.S., in France, in Germany, in the Netherlands. And his report to the bishops was this. He said, we've got divisiveness and fracturing that's making it very hard to find more in common. He said, there's actually about half the population is on each end of the spectrum. One half is just so consumed by bitterness and hatred that it's hard to figure out how to go forward. He said, there's another end that he called cosmopolitans. He said, these are serene secularists who are doing okay and they just want to ignore everything else and live happily. He said, the 50% in the middle, he said, are anxious. They're anxious about the future, what to believe in. They're anxious about their families, about jobs. They're anxious in all sorts of ways. And then he said, now I've got a confession to make. He said, I'm one of those cosmopolitans that's part of the problem. He said, I grew up in the Church of England, but I've kind of given it up. And he said, but the trouble is that the powerful stories that you're hearing are from the people who are marked by hatred and bitterness. And then he turned to the bishops and he said, but you all, he said, you all have a story that is compelling to a lot of people. He said, my question to you is, why are you not telling and living that story? Well, I, as I listened to him talk, realized that I had to throw out my plans for the afternoon, that we were going to need to discuss that and all of a sudden, it became a focus on what would it take for Christians, for people like you and me, to be able to speak and to live in a way that would help heal the wounds of our relationships, that would help reweave the social fabric. Jesus' words in Mark's gospel that Colin read just a few moments ago give us a clue as to what Brendan Cox was yearning for. Jesus says in verse 40, he who is not against us is with us. 
You see, in a tribalistic time, in a time when we're marked by divisions, what we tend to do is to want to hunker down in our own communities and just throw verbal grenades at others and say, if you're not with me, you're against me. But what Jesus says here is something about that compelling story, that compelling vision that points us to say, hey, here's the story, and if you're not hostile to us, join in and let's see what we can do together. That's what marked the early Christians, what made Christianity so surprising. My friend and colleague at Duke, Kevin Rowe, wrote a little book that came out last year called Christianity's Surprise. His presenting question was this, how is it that Christianity went from 5,000 followers of Jesus in the year 50 to more than 5 million in the year 250, long before Constantine? And what he said was, impelled by the power of Christ's resurrection on Easter and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, these were people called out of themselves into mission to be of service, to do things in the world. And it became compelling because it was rooted in a story of God's grace and God's love, a vision of what it means to live together, to find new life, and to be empowered, not to be consumed by the brokenness and all of our bad habits. Christianity became surprising. And that became the focus of my conversation with the bishops in the Church of England. What would it take for Christianity to be surprising again? One of them noted to me, he said, well, I've got a church in my diocese that goes back to 735. I doubt anything much will be surprising. And yet maybe that's the point. We've gotten so familiar that we've lost the power of Easter and Pentecost to surprise us, to turn the world upside down, and to call us out of ourselves and out of our brokenness and out of our temptations toward division and instead to build common ground, to build relationships, to bear witness. Well, how might we be able to do that? I think James 5, our epistle lesson for this morning, points to it. It's about learning the practices of the faith that help us unlearn sin and learn holiness and how to build those relationships afresh. It's about singing. It's about praying. It's about confessing. It's about healing. You see, what happened in the early church was those Christians actually started to form new institutions the first hospitals in the history of the world, the first orphanages to care for widows, orphans, the poor, to heal, to bear witness to all God is calling us to do. It got so powerful, Christians' positive witness in addressing human need, in building those bridges, in saying if you're not against us, you're with us. Christianity was spreading so much with the power of those institutions that eventually Julian the apostate, the Roman emperor, got really irritated. He said, these nasty Galileans, what he calls Christians, are making us Romans look bad. All sorts of people are becoming Christians. Why? Because they see the work we're doing to bear witness. The creation of those institutions, works of healing and care and embrace, the starting and sustaining of new institutions, 
when we have done our best as Christians to help reweave the social fabric, to help heal the wounds of relationships. It's when we have seen institutions like St. George's and Belmont and all kinds of other institutions as ways for Christian witness to be born. We do it when we navigate disagreements with grace and complexity when we practice interpretive charity and reach out to others who disagree with us with a posture of listening rather than speaking or shouting first, when we begin to recognize the possibilities and the grace, the dignity of all human beings as created in the image and likeness of God, and we begin to discover the bonds that connect us At the conclusion of our gospel, Jesus is talking about salt. And the focus of salt is not on the salt itself. It's on what salt, when it is spread, enables. It enhances flavor. It preserves. It charts new paths in the midst of ice and snow. The best ways for salt to be used are to be spread and to be out there bearing witness. And that's what you and I are called to be and to do. Jesus says, if you're not against us, you're for us. It's a bridge-building way to reweave the social fabric. Well, it can be challenging because we're not just talking about people in the abstract. Jaber Crow notes along the way the challenges of just living with our neighbors, not just side by side but together. You see, he had an enemy named Troy Troy was the agribusinessman, and Jaber was a simple farmer. Troy also had married the girl that Jaber had his heart set on. So Jaber really didn't like Troy much, but he still had to deal with him because Jaber was the barber in town, and Troy had to get his hair cut, and there was only one barber. So one day in the mid-1960s, Jaber's cutting Troy's hair, and there are men lined up along the windowsill like in Mayberry. And... Troy sitting in the chair and he says, well, if you ask me, you ought to just take all those commies and and Vietnam protesters and let them start shooting at each other and the more that die, the better. There's a hushed silence. And then Jaber says, love your enemies. Pray for those who hate you. Bless those who persecute you. Troy says, where'd that garbage come from? Jaber says, Jesus. And Troy says, huh. Then Jaber says, it would have been a great moment in the history of Christianity, except that I didn't love Troy. Our call is to build bridges, to learn how to love our neighbors, even if they drive us crazy and annoy us, how to help them learn to love us when we annoy them to build those bridges to sustain and preserve and enhance Christian institutions that bear witness and draw people to a new imagination, to make our faith surprising again, whether it's through this church or in your daily life, to to have people discover, oh, if that's what the gospel is, I'm interested. Toward the end of the novel, Jaber's reflecting on his life and how he has tried to learn to love Troy, to love others in the community. And then he says in reflection, my hope and my prayer is at the end of my life, when my life has been poured out, 
others would hear those sounds, good, 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 good. My prayer for you and for me and for all of us at St. George's and in Nashville and at Belmont is that we would live our lives, not just side by side, but together in ways that empowered by Christ's resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit, at the end of our life, people would hear our lives having been poured out, saying, good, 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 good. May it be so.